what's going on we're here with chris duran the maker and formulator of athena how's it going what up um so before we get started kind of wanted to go on your backstory on how you started at uc davis in the ag program and what that looked like yeah so uh, i was a student at uc davis and i'd always my, my history i'm kind of grew up in modesto spent a lot of time around agriculture uh, so I was at UC Davis for college, and I had an opportunity to take a job for in the Department of Entomology, working in some greenhouses, um, ran a bunch of insect trials, and built built their fertilizer regiment for the different plants we grew for their their fertilizer trials. I think that was back in 2004. And so. then what, that progressed into becoming the director of greenhouse research? Yeah, research operations. So... Uh, the University of California has about four and a half acres of, of research greenhouses in the College of Ag. And I progressed from working in, in the Department of Entomology and building out some of their program and just stayed in the greenhouse operations over there the whole time, worked my way up through the program, um, and then was the director of operations. So those greenhouses, we oversaw 400 different projects, roughly, uh, for different research throughout the department. And those all varied from, you know, simple yield trials to genetic expression um, and, and the typical stuff you expect like nitrogen use efficiency and drought work. Yeah. Um, through the years, I mean, what, what year did you really start formulating the, the blended? You're, you're the original blender of the, the blended line. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how long did you work on that? So that actually started um, when I was working for the department of entomology as a student assistant. So, you know, I, I had a, not only was I making fertilizer for, for those different flowers that we grew in chrysanthemums and, and zinnia, um, but I also grew cannabis. So started formulating for myself, um, getting a lot of trials out and had a group of other people that also, you know, grew weed. And so I was helping provide them with fertilizer and they were kind of my guinea pigs um, as opposed to going to the, the one or two hydroponic stores in Sacramento. And so I would make small batches basically starting then and getting into my friend's hands. Yeah. I've uh, been in the, hydroponics business for you know 15 years and um i haven't seen a cleaner line yeah uh how, how did like how do you do it like uh, so it's it, there's, there's a process to manufacturing that we definitely implement to keep it clean uh in addition to selection of raw ingredients you know it's there, there's multiple manufacturers of those these raw ingredients and kind of coming up with the right combination of them and the way that we process them to get them get them to the end user is is really special and and a little bit unique yeah henry that's kind of you guys work together on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, basically the techniques that I use were, you know, the ones that I took from Chris to do all the clarity tests and to help sort through these different manufacturers' um, nutrients and their, their raw ingredients. Yeah. Um, there's, within the same grade, within solution grade, there's multiple manufacturers, okay? So, so if you get packages from all of them and you search through for the clearest one then you can go through and do chemical testing and that's that's kind of what we work together on yeah it it can be frustrating from time to time you know i mean there's a lot of these things are are mass produced they're semi-natural products that are that are mined from the earth at some level and then minimally processed and so uh, it can be it can just be challenging finding the right ingredients and um not all of you know, it's like a lot of different products you get, even though they might be from the same manufacturer, they're not necessarily all coming from the same source. So there's a, a lot of testing that goes in basically with receipt of every single raw ingredient batch that we get. 
Yeah. Um, what makes what makes the I know there go there's more that goes into just the raw ingredients. I mean, you have a, a filtration process. I know you can't go into the details of it, but you know how how long does it take to make a batch because of that filtration process, or what does that look? You know, it's complicated. You know, there's there's different products that we actually manufacture and sell, and they they all have a slightly different process. You know, but it's not as simple as uh, you know turn around. A lot of your pro line people are familiar. You know, they they dissolve a bag of of pre-weighed, pre-formulated, you know, mineral salts, and and they dissolve it out. And then they're basically ready to go. So we actually take it from that step and and actually further process it to remove all the other uh, sediments and impurities that we can get out, you know, within reason, so that there's less cleaning and the end user has less line clogging and it's just simpler to use. It's yeah. also more stable on the shelves too. It certainly is. Yeah, yeah. If you get rid of get rid of some of the, the insolubles and impurities, there's less places for for more of the fertilizer to fall out. So then, while these water soluble lines are stable, they still over time will will slowly you know, things will become insoluble inside of those solutions. So I remember we were talking about how just the order of operations in which you put those together can even affect the, the total outcome of totally. Uh, yeah, totally. You know, the, the ingredients are all there on the bottle, you know, we put it on there, you, you know, you know, what's coming into these things, but, uh, you can't just add them all in there and hope for the best. You're not gonna, not going to get the results that you're shooting for. The mix order is important. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Is there what what makes blended unique compared to other nutrient lines or or just in I, general? It is exceptionally clean. Um, you know, there's it's a low nitrogen formula and you know very high potassium formula, and I think you know that's even very similar to what's going on inside of the the blended or I'm sorry the the pro line. Um, you know, cannabis loves high levels of potassium. And keeping the nitrogen down really helps with high quality. So, I, you know, that was kind of the push. Um, and it's also, it's, it's adaptable. You know, there's not 400 parts. It's not advanced nutrients. Um, but there's what you have. The tools are there to make small modifications for your genetics to actually grow your plant the way you need to grow it. There is no one-size-fits-all nutrient, um, despite what somebody might tell you. Um, genetics are just, they're variable. There's a lot of good breeders out there now. There's a lot of good strains. And they do have some slightly different requirements. And with the blended line, you do have the tools to make the modifications to give your plants what they want. I had no idea less nitrogen increases quality. It should. Yeah. I mean, it's going to make plants less bullish, um, you know, less vegetated growth prone. Um, it, it could potentially slow down growth just a touch, but generally that's at improved quality, you know, in the flowering stage, you just don't want to have too much nitrogen go into the plants. Yeah. It finishes better. You yeah. Know, you'll see that the trichomes start to change color better with the lower nitrogen. Uh, remember in some of my first trials i had kept higher nitrogen later in flower and you would the trichomes would just stay clear longer and longer and yeah. longer and it's and so, a, it's a delay thing also yeah. it's just harder to get it to finish up so you know there's a, a yield over time that's also important you might get a big yield but if it takes you an extra three weeks it might not be worth it yeah i mean i you i i didn't know why we had less nitrogen in our pro line bloom formula than other formulas like that you have there's a lot of two-part there's a lot of two-part formulas out there now that are powder and I knew that we had less nitrogen than them. I just didn't know why. Yeah, in the flower, it's important to, yeah, definitely. to have it. Yeah, I'm, to be clear, you definitely need copious amounts of nitrogen during the vegetative stage. Like, that's not that's not when we're talking about. There's plenty of nitrogen yeah, there. But yeah. getting into flower, for sure, you want to you wanna cut back on nitrogen pretty heavy. And, and the ratio between, um, you know, calcium and nitrogen is really important to make sure that you get good, good plant structure. Yeah, that's interesting. I had no idea. Um you know, we get a lot of talk about organics and synthetics, um, on Instagram and whatnot. 
And can you go over the differences between organics and synthetics? Yeah, so most of the organics are, are providing nutrients in a form that's not quite available for the plants yet. There's some of it that, that is there. You know, there's certain salts that are organic and can be marketed as organic, but you have to use them in very small amounts to still call it organic. Um, you know, you can get organic magnesium sulfate, for example. But most of them require a secondary process to, to free up those nutrients. So, you know, you're, you're going to have to have a root zone that, that can decompose those and break those down somehow fast enough to keep up with, you know, a rapidly growing cannabis plant. And that, that's the challenge. So by going through a synthetic nutrient, you're, you're eliminating that step. You're providing the plants with what they want immediately, and it's always available. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a situation where an organic grow has been able to keep up fast enough in the same genetics to equal the same yield. And it, it's just tough. You know, without doing all the work in advance and then trying to, to concentrate like a tea or something and get it into a plant. And if you provide the plant what it, what it wants, you know, what can get through its root wall, then you can just bypass that step. Yeah, I was always under the assumption that organic growers are better growers than salt growers. I mean, just in general, you have to be. It's a more complicated process. Yeah. There's more room for error, without a doubt. You know, I think that's a, that's a real concern. Yeah. So it is you more challenging. You so ahead in organics. I started organic. And, you know, if you're not thinking at least two, three weeks ahead of where your plant is now. And I mean, where sometimes it needs even to be, farther ahead. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you're, yeah. And it's it's just hard to get the, particularly the levels of nitrogen without accidentally, you know, creating a situation where you're going to burn your plant because you need to create that like nitrite and turn it into nitrate. And it in order for there to be enough of that there, the nitrite can burn your plants. So there's, there's like this level that you have to surf and it's an art. And I've yeah. seen people who can show up with a handful of worm castings and a watering can and grow and grow some fire, but the yield, you know, hampers. You know no, I mean? I've always respected the organic grower. Yeah, I, complete respect. 100%. I, I, yeah. I, you know, feel like that, you know, I tried really hard to make it work. And, yeah. and I was successful, but I'm just a performance guy. I wanted to get that extra bit of performance. You know, that was what mattered to me, you know? Yeah. And I also think there's a repeatability challenge yeah. when, when it comes to organics is that there's the whole system that you're running, you're going to shut it down and restart it for the next cycle and getting everything in the same balance that you had on the last cycle could be a challenge. And so you might not have the same repeatable results and it makes it difficult to then make adjustments because the change could be from your initial condition. So, you know, if you start a, an organic grow, say in spring, you wrap it up and you're starting up another one in fall, things might be different. Uh, even if it's in an indoor environment, there's still different, you know, you're out in the environment, you're still bringing things into your grow that are gonna establish an organic grow and, and it's gonna give you slightly different results. With synthetic operation, you can repeat the results more frequently and have more um, consistent outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've heard some, some different things and I don't know if it's true or not. Are, are there problems with heavy metals with organic mixes? Cause you don't know exactly what the inputs are or anything like that on cannabis testing or, I mean, there could be, yeah, it's, yeah, there certainly can be. I mean, there's, there's always, if there's something in the soil, you know, you can't a, control, you yeah, just don't know what it is. Yeah. And it's, Cause it's not and inert when you're using an inert media, you eliminate that. I mean, that's a lot of why hydroponics was there is because of soil borne diseases and, and things like heavy metals being in the soil. Yeah. Um, you know, an inert media eliminates that. And that's what this is, is just eliminating potential problems before they become a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you're minimizing the variables, you know, so you can actually 
predict the outcome. You know, it's, it's frustrating if you were to put a lot of work into or, an organic grow and, and let's say you just couldn't get enough phosphorus out of what you were, what you were doing. So your yields just stayed low. Yeah. You know, it's frustrating. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I've been down, I've done it. I tried, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I didn't do that good at it. Now in a the field there's there regenerative agriculture is, is a really positive thing. And that's what should be going on out in a field that you're pouring into our, you know, into our water table, you know, responsible organic farming is, mm-hmm. you know, an increasing biodiversity around the world is, is something that farmers who are growing the ground need to do. Yeah. So, for sustainable agriculture. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can rotate it even with synthetic nutrients and, keep that soil health which will you know help everybody you know so we can still all be on this you know we're doing positive things for the world and for the environment um when it comes to putting things actually into the ground and and all most of these systems are run in you know in an indoor a lot of them have you know runoff systems that recirculate the water and sterilize it you know so there's there's really ways to minimize the impact in the environment with you know, using synthetic nutrients too. Yeah. And not all synthetic nutrients are created equal. A lot of, a lot of things that farmers are applying, you know, and this is just conventional ag in general are, are byproducts of other industrial processes, but they happen to have some zinc in them, um, or some other important element. And so they, they spread it across, you know, orchards or fields and they can start to accumulate things. So, you know, we, we definitely want to, you know, getting, getting fields going this way, basically, you know, biodynamics and setting it up, it's still important, which synthetic nutrients you're applying. So, uh, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, like yeah. Coal, coal fly ash. It's a byproduct of burning coal. And what's left behind is, is heavy metals. And then they take an analysis of that. And you can spread it and sell it as fertilizer. Um, you know, there's, I think, um, oh, what is it? Malorganite or something like that. And I can't, the name's escaping me here. But essentially, it's a bunch of trace elements package. They sell it readily at the home and garden stores. Canada considers it toxic waste. Oh, wow. So... You know, okay. It is so, yeah, important what you're selecting from yeah. synthetic nutrients too. They're not all created yeah. equal without a doubt. Yeah. Going into that, I mean, <clears throat> you know, we're getting, you know, calcium nitrate into selecting the right calcium nitrate and why we sell core instead of selling a bag of why, why do you do that? Why do you, um, why don't you just let the customer buy calcium nitrate and we just sell a one part? Yeah. It, it's the balance of nutrients and, and the quality. We can, we can assure that you're getting good quality, which is what you expect from the product. And we can also keep the mineral balance the same throughout the grow. So if you vary your, you know, your amount of core versus your amount of bloom, you're, if you're dropping the core, you're going to be dropping some of the micronutrients in ratio with the core. And that's what we want. We don't want one part to have all the domination for the micronutrients or else you could really th- throw things out of balance. Yeah. Cause you can, you can adjust the amount of core and have, more nitrogen or less nitrogen in different phases, you know, so it's designed for the advanced grower, the pro line, you know, for people who are professionals and understand what they're doing when they increase, you know, their nitrogen and are, are trying to tailor to specific strains you can do instead of 60% core, you can add 70% or 80% of the, of the bloom and you can have more nitrogen or do less of it in the beginning part. And people don't want as yeah. much nitrogen in their, in their, in their plants, you know, they can, they can back it down. Yeah. So, so they can do that because our micronutrients and our iron are split between the A and A and the B. So if you increase or decrease this, the ratio is the exact same. And if you yeah. did that with a nutrient that had it all in one and you would, your, your ratios would, would be off to your micronutrients. Okay. Or if somebody bought 
um, there's, like we've been saying, there's many different brands, many different grades, even within that brand of the calcium nitrate. Um, you know, I don't want to leave it up to a guy to decide, oh, I'm going to save some money and buy this $12 bag and put it as my other part. And it's, it's toxic or it's full of yeah, or a pile of sludge. You know, I think, yeah. I think that's what we find a lot is, is there are variable grades of calcium nitrate and impurities come with it and a lot of insolubles at times. And it'd be real tough for a grower to go get their own calcium nitrate and run it with the remainder of the pro line. And, and how do you provide good tech support for that? They threw their ratios off. You know, and let's say that we could avoid that with the ratio problem. They still would potentially be adding a product that we can't qualify as being high quality. Yeah, we quality. can control yeah. the quality on it. And it, and it really yeah. would make it tough to give our opinion on how to make things better and make adjustments because we don't, we weren't able to do a lab analysis on that. We aren't able to know what's actually in there. And if it's clogging your lines, we, we can't do anything about that necessarily either. You know, we, uh, we learned that with even Yara. I mean, Yara has two different calcium nitrates that they sell in the United States. They have a East yep. Coast calcium, cal nitrate yep. and they have a West Coast cal nitrate. And what's yep. crazy is that it's the same bag. It's the, it's the same bag. And their representatives yeah. don't know that there's a difference. Either. Exactly. The, the, the yeah. sales reps yeah. but we for do. Yara had yeah, no, we <laughs> the, I called up the sales reps on the East Coast and I'm like, hey, I'm looking for this prill size. And he had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, you have a different cow nitrate on the West Coast than you do on the East Coast. And the yeah. cow nitrate that you have, what was it? The cow nitrate on the West Coast is the one we can't use. Yeah, it's it's just a little bit different. You know, it has a few more impurities. It's basically designed for California agriculture, you know, field agriculture. Field crops. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's where a lot of it's designed for. And sure. it's where most the field of it is full of buffers. Okay. Yeah. So you can throw... A, a much lower quality into a soil environment and it will buffer it better. It's not like a hydroponic environment where we have every last bit of solution in there is fertilizer. The less buffers you have, the more room you have for fertilizer, the higher performance, but it's then higher touch. But they've just been putting the lower grade calcium nitrate in the field and the soil buffers it. And it's, yeah. it's, not, a pro it's and they, not a problem. They don't have a problem with insolubles because yeah. those insolubles are generally things that actually can break down in the field as fertilizer salts you know they they there's a system out there that can handle that and they can patiently wait for that and it's not a problem for them they can spread the prill they can feed it as liquid and the type of sprinklers that they're using aren't going to get clogged you know they there's a a cost benefit for them in the field that that we won't experience you know we need the higher quality product what was, what was the main problem with the west coast yara cal nitrate that we were dealing with mostly insolubles you know, it, the tanks were staying dirty. People were needing to clean and it was potentially clogging lines. Yeah. But we also had, you know, some deficiencies and some, some problems with plants. Yeah. I, th I think most of that had to do with the challenges of, of formulating it and getting it to behave properly and keeping that right, the correct ratio with the micronutrients. Yeah. Um, we were having issues with, with things basically staying together. You know, yeah. it was, it was a manufacturing challenge also. Yeah. Um, that's cool. It's interesting. It, you know, it's, it's interesting that, even Yara doesn't know, even Yara representatives yeah. don't know what they have on the East Coast, West yeah. Coast. That's that. I was really uh, surprised by that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's still, and the, and the thing is, is that when you're looking um, on the bag, it's, you know, 1500, you know, that's what it has to be. It has to be, you know, that much percentage of, of nitrogen. Okay. And, and it, it can vary in there within fertilizer regulations for the raw materials. Like, there, there can be variants in there. 
And so that's, that's, you just have to do the work to sort through that, to, to know this or to have someone like him that has the experience. Cause I didn't know that when I came here, mm-hmm. you know, that there was two different grades, but he's been, you know, building fertilizer, mixing fertilizer, you know, in a research environment where those little things are picked up, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, moving into microbes, you know, with synthetics, you know, we, we talked earlier about organics, but in a synthetic form, are microbes necessary or would you recommend feeding microbes when you're feeding synthetics? I, I personally wouldn't, you know, generally they're, they're not necessary. Um, they don't have a lot of food source and you don't need them to break anything down. You're giving the plant what it needs in the form it needs. You can, you can just skip that step and keep moving along. Yeah. And if you do give it, if you, if you try to solubilize something by giving sugars, you know, you're giving food to these microbes. Um, there's, that's a double-edged sword because there's good microbes and there's bad microbes. We've all heard of, you know, anaerobic activity. Well, there's anaerobic microbes. If you throw sugar into the root zone to try to feed them, you know, you can create a pythium outbreak. You can, you can, you feed everything that's there. So it's better to have a sterile environment. And like we said, remove that possibility of outcome. If there was organics in there, we would, yeah, we'd want to put sugars. We would want to build the microbial population to solubilize all that. But we want all those organics, all the sugars out of the root zone because they can fester. Basically they can sit there and create, create problems in the root zone. Yeah. Unless you know exactly what's alive down there, you don't know what you're feeding. And so the, the goal is to provide as little food for whatever is living down there so that the plant can stay happy and healthy. It has natural defenses to deal with a lot of, a lot of different pathogens that are going to be in its root zone. But if you provide a big blast of, of hydrocarbons or sugars, and those things flourish, then the, the plant's not going to have time to defend itself. It's not going to have the capabilities. If you have a huge pythium bloom, you're, you're just out of luck. I mean, sure, you could. I mean, feeding, like going into microbes and then even going into microbe routines, you could be hurting yourself. Sometimes. If you aren't, if you aren't ready for the, the root zone response of what's going to occur and you don't know what's down there, then you certainly could be hurting yourself. Well, what about... What about um you know, I've heard a lot of microbes helping with pathogens or viruses in the root zone. I mean, what's your thoughts on that then? It, it's mostly a crowding out effect. So you, you establish, you know, and I think this would be something that'd be more useful for, um, like if you're a rock wool grower, I don't think you're going to get a lot of effect out of something like this. But if you can pre-inoculate with something that's safe for the plant and is going to outcompete potentially a plant pathogen. Mycorrhiza. Yeah, something along those lines. You, you, could, you could potentially see some benefit from that. If you're not feeding that with extra sugars also, then its population is obviously going to dwindle. You know, it needs a food source to survive also. And so it's going to go down to a very low level. So, you know, you, you either commit to that and commit to feeding that and adding more parts, um, or you don't, you let the plant do its, keep the plant nice and healthy and let it defend itself against the very small level of, of microbial life. Do, do my, what about breaking down dead roots? I mean, microbes help break down dead roots and clean those up or? Sure. I mean, they're going to call it as the root surface, you know, and there's, there's always a little bit of, of dead plant matter that's going to be, you know, coming off from the root zone. Um, you know, I think the goal is to get most of that washed through and passed out as quickly as you can. Uh, we do offer cleanse product, which is going to help break that down and, and avoid biofilms growing on those, on the actual roots themselves. Um, and that should help with nutrient uptake and keep things going. Um, 
you know, there's always going to be something alive in your root zone. The idea is to keep it at a minimum. You know, I, we talk about this as a sterile environment in the root zone. It's just, yeah. it's kind of a misnomer. You know, you're not providing additional things. You're not feeding what's alive down there other than your plant, but there's definitely things alive in that root zone. You just want to make sure that you're keeping them minimally fed from, you know, basically external sources. So I'm, I'm not a fan of adding, you know, a bunch of sugars and to the root zone. It just seems like it um, is counterproductive for what we're actually trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, microbes versus enzymes on cleaning. I mean, you see a lot of enzyme products out there, um, on cleaning and keeping the root root zone clean. What, what, what would you pick? I, so enzymes, you know, they're, a lot of them are going to be like cellulase and they're going to break down, you know, decomposing cell walls are basically broken down cell walls are not decomposing at this point. Um, but as the plant is basically getting rid of dead plant matter in the root zone, which is very normal and natural as the plant grows, um, it's going to be in the root zone. These enzymes are actually breaking them down into simpler, smaller hydrocarbons and sugars. Um, that's potentially going to feed what's in your root zone. If it's minimal and it's happening frequently, it's probably not a huge problem, um, but it is going to feed what's down there. You know, so a lot of these enzymes work in conjunction and, you know, they, they promote and say they're basically feeding what's alive down there and it's helping break down and allow the roots to absorb more. And that's probably true. Again, same thing is in place. If you don't know exactly what's alive in your root zone and how that feeding is going to occur, it could be counterproductive. Um, you know, you also can break down decomposing plant material in areas where, where other pathogens might fester by using something like cleanse. Um, and generally using a run to waste method is probably going to be your best bet to keep that root zone clean. You know, recirculating methods can be a, a much bigger challenge if you're recycling pathogens around uh, and accumulating what the enzymes or cleanse product is, is sharing it away. with all your other plants. Yeah, the sharing thing is its yeah, own problem. I, I understand, yeah. you know, recirculating systems, some people have great results, you know, and, and if you properly treat it, you know, a lot of the greenhouse industry it does that. It's very water wise. It's, it can yeah. be wise if you're not growing a high value crop. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it can be a challenge. Lettuce, sure, no problem. Sure, yeah, and you know, you know but a lot of cannabis plants haven't been bred for their high quality disease resistance. You know, yeah, that's the last, yeah. the last thing a lot of these breeders are thinking about is you know powdery mildew resistance and disease resistance. And you know, I, I saw a lot of that breeding work going on at UC Davis, and you know, because they realized that you can reduce inputs and increase the the tolerable range for a lot of these plants. And I think you know a lot of cannabis research will be going in that direction for doing breeding programs. Um, but that doesn't exist right now. And so the, the goal is to take this high yielding, high potency, amazing plant and protect it from all the things that no breeder ever bred into it. And, and that's disease resistance, you know, like they powdery mildew is a huge problem. Like, you know, you look at, look at a lot of these varieties and it's, you wonder how, how do you get so much powdery mildew? How do you have so much, so many sensitivities to, to things like pythium that are ubiquitous in the environment? So going into, you know, with the with the enzymes it could be hurting you i mean it, it can if you don't know what's in your root zone and and you apply a bunch of these enzymes it decomposes or breaks down um decomposes wrong term but it breaks down a bunch of these cell walls you know lignin basically and it and it breaks it down into something that's a simple sugar you are going to feed whatever is alive down there and you should creating more food for microbes yeah that that yeah, could be bad microbes creates the sugars yeah that, yeah exactly yeah, that, yeah the enzymes are breaking down and then releasing sugars essentially so what, what cleanse versus an enzyme can you explain the difference yeah. yeah so it it operates in a different method you know the the whole goal is to basically keep keep the roots free of biofilm keep the root zone free of, of scale and nucleation sites for pathogens to basically come in and harbor 
disease. And so with something like cleanse, you're going to, you're going to break these down and wash them out without using an enzyme. Um, and, and you get similar results, but it's, it's a different kind of process than, um, breaking down complex sugars all the way down to simple sugars or, or lignans and you know down to sugars. It's a, it's just a different process. It's not using an enzyme. It's actually, you know, using a chemical process. That's not an enzyme. So probably bypasses some time and it's a preventative process so you can keep doing it all the time personally i'd use cleanse you know it's an easier hypochloric acid yeah cleanse, yeah hypochlorous yeah. acid so what are the what are the full benefits of, of hypochloric acid in the root zone so it has a residual effect you know which is nice you can actually apply it um you know something like hydrogen peroxide you're going to apply it it's going to be all used up almost immediately um, but something like hypochlorous acid is going to have residual so you apply it it's going to stick around in the root zone um, it's going to descale basically and keep your lines clean and it's also going to to increase your orp down in that root zone so what is orp um oxidative reductive potential reductase potential but it generally it's it's the ability um to oxidize in in a solution you know and, and oxidative oxidation is important in breaking down you know and eliminating basically pathogens yeah, so it's basically the potential of that liquid to kill off bad pathogens, basically, yeah. is what, what it to re is. To reduce or oxidize. To reduce or oxidize. And reducing yeah. is the other direction? Is, yeah, moving, yeah, moving electrons in one direction or the yeah. other. So you're saying when somebody uses hydrogen peroxide, it's gone within 15 minutes? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly active. I mean, that's, that's what it does. I mean, it, it bubbles because it's, it's reacting and releasing oxygen. Like it's, it has an extra oxygen for each, you know, it's H2O2. And it's breaking down to H2O and releasing oxygens. So oxygenating the root zone with hydrogen and peroxide, there is no long term. Like there's no residual. No residual. No. So it's kind of just a quick hit and done. Yeah. And, and it has its place. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's definitely a very short term, short term product. Yeah. Um, but hypochloric acid, like cleanse, lasts for how long? Uh, it depends on the condition of of the root zone and the solution that it's in. Um, if you're providing nutrient solution, RO water, it's not a research product and there's, there's very little, um, organic demand basically, then it's going to, going to keep a residual of, you know, 24 to 36 hours up to 72 hours if it's sitting in a, a reservoir. So it really comes down to, to biological demand, you know, what, what's in that root zone that's going to be basically being taken apart by the hypochlorous. Yeah. Um, I've been. I've been using it. I started using cleanse, uh, four years ago and, um, I used to have a problem with new employees over watering, uh, brand new rooted clones and veg. And usually what would happen is if I, when I wasn't using cleanse or when I, in the past, when I didn't use it, they would, you know, we'd do a new transplanted clone, water it. And then sometimes the, the clone would get waterlogged and yeah. it, it, it would like take a week or two to kind of jump out and start growing. And then you'd have like some spots in the garden where, you know, plants were smaller than others because they got a little waterlogged because the employee or whoever the grower was overwatered that, that cocoa plant or whatever. But with cleanse, they've never done that. They don't do that anymore. Yeah. It buys you time. You know, it really does. It just, it, it keeps the, the root zone from becoming as hypoxic and it, it just, you know, you were talking yeah. about aerobic and anaerobic conditions, you know, and, and keeping a, a higher ORP down the root zone is going to promote, you know, basically better conditions in that root zone. Yeah. You so know, it, the, can, the plant it can do sit its thing in better. that more water now 
And because it has a higher ORP, it can fight off those diseases or pathogens or whatever that we're going to choke it off before. So if you sit there, sits there and wet, you know, you get the pythium, you get the fusarium, you get those things starting to build and battle against that thing, being able to uptake the water, uptake the nutrients and spread its roots. And so if you increase the ORP, it's sitting in a better solution that doesn't have that it, the solution itself can fight off those diseases and make it so the plant can still uptake stuff. It's a, it, you're adding oxygen, right? I mean, to the water. Can you say that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you're not going to see as much on a DO meter. The ORP is more important necessarily than just dissolved oxygen that's in there. So adding dissolved oxygen should increase your ORP also. This increases ORP without just adding oxygen. So there's, there's more to it than just hypochlorous acid that's going in. Um, but you'll see the ORP increase and there's great data on ORP and, you know, CFU's colony forming unit decrease based on your level of ORP. Um, now we've seen some stuff come out about chlorine dioxide and we've seen, you know, our, our competitors, you know, say, Hey, you know, chlorine dioxide's cheaper than hypochloric acid. What's your thoughts on why don't we make a chlorine dioxide? It's not very user-friendly. You know, there are some systems that, that people can use. It's a, it's a dissolved gas. It is fairly effective. It's used widely in like the poultry industry, um, for cleaning off basically salmonella. And it's, it is a great, you know, it's, it'll create a sterile environment without a doubt. Um, it's definitely not very user-friendly. Um, it does have a level of a residual, which is, which is nice. Um, but it, it is challenging and hard to use. The equipment is rather sophisticated and when it fails it's not as simple to fix as something you would like you know and the input ingredients for running that are also um, not user friendly you know they're you're running high concentrations of acid and and bleach and if the system goes wrong you're not injecting it's not making the right product then you could be injecting things that aren't good for yeah, your hydroponic system straight injecting acid and dropping your ph right like, right there yeah. can be some secondary effects if the system goes down and these things are they're kind of finely tuned machines they do have some other options for making your own chlorine dioxide there's some some companies that sell some items but the the risk you run i think is higher and i from an em employee standpoint those systems have their own you know they need to be cordoned off and secured because if it goes wrong Chlorine dioxide is a gas, you know, it, it will fill a room if the system's going wrong or if it's overly concentrated, uh, it'll gas off out of that solution that's supposed to be injected into your, your irrigation. What about feeding to the plants? Is there one that has less room for air? Chlorine dioxide it, versus hypochloric acid? Yeah. Hypochlorous acid has much wider range of, <laughs> of tolerance by plants. It's just, you can, you can run at a higher PPM without seeing burn. Uh, chlorine dioxide is really important to know what your de what your demand is, so you need to do a demand test to verify. Um, so you basically are going to have to get your product, start it, do do a test on it with different concentrations of chlorine dioxide, and find out how much is left after you've reacted it off. Uh, and if that number changes, and you don't change the actual test, then you could be injecting it at you know two or three times the rate and causing some issues. What what would happen if you Fed too much chlorine dioxide. It could burn roots. Burn. It, so chlorine dioxide will actually go through the cell wall. Like it, it can actually get into the, the nucleus of, or into the, the cell itself and destroy it from the inside out. It's, it's a very effective product for that reason for disinfectant and sterilization. But because it's so effective, you also run the risk of damaging your plants. Okay. Um, with When it comes to using cleanse with microbes, if somebody's using cleanse with microbes, um, cleanse is a lot easier on the plant or the microbes than hydrogen peroxide, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it, they act differently. You know, it's a the chlorine sciences. You know, you can look a lot of these things up to get some of the details. Um, but hydrogen peroxide is just a super harsh blast that's going to oxygenate and kill a ton of things. Uh, hypochlorous, you're running it preventatively at a low level, um, and it it generally does pretty well with things. We were talking about you know beneficial nematodes um, and whether people could run those for for fungus gnats and and cleanse won't wipe those out. If you do a huge blast with hydrogen peroxide, you're gonna you're gonna kill everything, and that's that's the challenge with the hydrogen peroxide is if you do use it, you are going to sterilize everything, and what recolonizes or what comes back in is going to become unpredictable. So it's, hydrogen peroxide is kind of a last ditch effort if you're if things are getting out of control. Yeah, it's great to sterilize rooms in between. It's sure. great for I mean, and and I even before I knew about hypochlorous, I I ran it in low levels in the system, but then you're running a truly sterile system. Yeah, so. yeah, it's a <laughs> sorry, far yeah. from the mic. It's just it's a different mentality of what you're doing if you're running hydrogen peroxide. It's also pretty nasty to handle it as a concentrate. Yeah, you know, again, there's there is a, a user. A level of of user expertise that you want to give people a product that they anybody who's used it has turned their hands white at one point or the other i don't i don't care what you say yeah or you find out oh you you know you wore your gauntlet gloves right and you uh and then you're looking down you got white white splash dots on your arm from when you're dumping it or mixing it and so you're not going to get that from from running cleanse I mean, at two mils a gallon, I know that, you know, you're careful with what you say, but at two mils a gallon, does, does cleanse kill microbes? I mean, what's your... That slightly backs them off, but not, not to the not point. Not wipes them out. It'll increase the ORP in the solution, and that's, that's going to have an effect on, on microbes. Okay. And so there's a log reduction of CFU versus ORP, the chart. Yeah. yeah. And we, and I, you know, I think we had talked about this, we'll... Yeah. We'll get some things together, some, some gonna, publications yeah, we'll of, post. yeah, that we're ORP and showing some of the effect on ORP versus time versus, you know, CFUs. Is there an optimum level of ORP that you want in your root zone or, or in your water? It's kind of time dependent. So, you know, if you can have more, more contact time, you can have a lower ORP. Um, if you have a higher, higher load that, you know, you're going to want a higher ORP and that's, you know, basically it runs up, uh, with the amount of cleanse that you add. Um, you know, if you're, if you're measuring your runoff and you're, you have a very, very low ORP on your runoff, you probably would want to increase the rate because that that's showing you that there's a demand for it. And it's, it's actually, you know, dropping your ORP and, and it's losing efficacy as it works its way through the root zone. I mean, ORP sounds pretty important. I mean, I mean, should you have the PPM meter or EC meter and then you have a pH meter? Do you think every grower should have an ORP meter? If they can, um, you know, it's one of those things, again, if you, if you get your regiment going and it's working for you, you probably don't have to have an ORP meter. You know, you'll start yeah. seeing if your ORP is not, not right. Um, and you start seeing some pathogen issues. I think you'd, you'd realize that whether you had a meter I mean, yeah, or not. If you can test your runoff uh, of it every once in a while with that, that, yeah. would, that would be yeah. really helpful. They're yeah. finicky meters. So yeah. results can be frustrating sometimes, you know, even the, the nice, you know, Hannah makes some nice lab grade meters and even those are, are not the most consistent all the time. So it's just the frequency of readings. Yeah, I think, I mean, most growers are going to be able to notice it in, you know, the increased ORP. They're going to notice, you know, wider roots, you know, more uptake. Either You're going to notice it in the plant and in the, you know, overall quality of your root zone. Yeah, less is, biofilms is, yeah, are going to be less forming. Yeah, less biofilms. Yeah. Like, that's how, how you can sort of do that as, you know, you know, before Arroyo, everybody was walking around lifting pots. 
you know, trying to figure out your water content, yeah. you know, you can do that with the runoff, you know, with a ORP banner every once in a while, you know, you could test it, but most of it, you're going to, you're going to notice a, a qualitative difference in the grow if you have that number dialed correctly. Yeah. Um, I get, I get asked a lot, does cleanse help with algae buildup on the top of uh, rock wool? Probably not a ton. You know, it, um, it, it's got pretty high levels of, of UV up there inside of a grow room and UV will start to break it down. Um, you know, and then the algae starts to basically create its own biofilm up there. There's a, a huge amount of demand, you know, you might get some preventative effect running it, but I don't think you're going to see a huge, huge decrease. You know, your best bet is to probably get things a little bit dry on the top of the cube if you can and get that canopy closed up as quickly as possible. Okay. So some algae is, not the end of the world, but it's, it's kind of unavoidable at some level. I mean, does yeah. algae doesn't harm, harm the plant, does it? A, a small amount. It's not going to, you know, generally yeah. it has more to do with, it's going to be feeding a lot of the fungus gnats that are flying around and causing you, you know, yeah, nobody, gonna, nobody likes causes fungus other all over the place. And, yeah. And it, I mean, it's technically competition for your nutrients. Yeah. To it's some level stuff, yeah. but it would have to be a big problem. I mean, the algae getting out of control is more indicative of other problems in your system. Like, there you go. You know, you're, you're, you know, you've got your waters too hot. Like there's lots of things that can contribute to that. Yeah. Um, you know, besides irrigation technique, how your drippers hit the top, if the water spreads, you know, there's, there's a, a bunch of things, but overall I never stressed about it as much coming from, um, uh, from tomatoes and peppers and from the commercial side, like it's, it's a fact of life. Yeah, it's a, it's a fact of fact of life, and and uh, I feel that mostly cannabis growers have worried about it too much. With the one caveat of you know it's getting out of control. There's slime in every table. Right. You know that's indicative of bigger problems. Um, you know it's not the algae that's the that's the symptom. Yeah, I think you know dealing with a lot of growers outside of the outside of the cannabis industry also um, for research. It's interesting that their level of concern for algae is virtually zero. So they don't, they don't see it as a detriment necessary to plants. And like it's a fact of life and, you know, growers of every crop have spent time trying to manage and mitigate the algae. And so you find a, a level that you can tolerate with your crop. Um, you know, it, it feeds fungus gnats. I think that's probably one of the bigger things is shore flying fungus gnats that are going to be coming in and feeding it, flying around, spreading things around in there. Um, and you know, there's a little bit of root damage that can happen from fungus gnat larvae. And so you do want to avoid those things. But keeping it to a level where it's not making these heavy films, you know, if you're seeing like filaments and strands going down the channels of your flood tables, you should probably evaluate the way you're irrigating. Yeah, that's probably an issue. But if you have, you know, like that, if you can still see the texture of the rock wool, it's just a little bit green, probably not a huge problem. You know, okay. I, I just don't see that as being a real detriment to, to people's grows. Yeah. Um, you know, I see a lot of marketing from different nutrient companies and you have the the pharmaceutical grade nutrient companies, you know, and they're pitching this pharmaceutical grade stuff. What, what is pharmaceutical grade? I don't even know what that is. It's not a thing. I don't know what it is either. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it doesn't exist. It's sort of a buzzword that's been thrown around. Um, you know, don't get us wrong. There are several different grades of nutrients. Yeah. I believe there's maybe there's USP grade. Yeah, which there is, is USP grade for, which for is, some of these, the raw ingredients, but they're magnesium sulfate would be a great one, right? Because they actually use certain magnesium salts for, for direct human consumption for medicine purposes, right? You know, they're, they're using some of these for like laxatives. So there are USP grades, but a lot of these other products, there's, there's just yeah. simply is not. But the USP grades are like $700 a gram. They're really, yeah, or, really or, expensive. They're not something that somebody is going to sell you 
um, you know, a 25 pound bag of for, you know, a few hundred dollars. They're, it's, it's really, they're really, really expensive, these USP grades, and they're not or it's a testing soon. or it's a yeah. testing situation. Yeah. You know, they can, they can ensure that it's been tested in, at a different level or at a different accredited lab. You know, it, even things like, like food grade products, lots of times it just means that it's, it's been ran through an extra step or an extra process. There's more move, oversight. Like metallic yeah. It's like, like, Oh, uh, somebody, a piece of the farm equipment didn't land in this food grade product. So they magneted it out. You know, remember even like in all food processing, we eat tons of food, right. And people eat, produced foods and and canned goods and jarred mm-hmm. goods they're allowed certain amounts of contaminants so you know food grade sounds great but you know there's yeah x number of insect legs like these are all things that are already in existence and so i mean, know, food I mean grade one of the inputs i was looking at for one of our products has three different grades but they're all chemically the same the right. only difference on the food grade one is the food grade packaging and then oversight they have to have somebody at this spot ensuring that it was you know not getting contaminated yep. they look you know. at it and say it's yeah. still yeah. there so it, you know yeah. the, the cost is generally not associated with being a better product it's or a different norm- product even. Yeah, yeah it's normally just associated with regulations yeah because you can only get like if it's 99.9 percent pure i mean there's not a whole lot of room to make oh i got that extra 0.1 percent like, yeah and you know you're not going to pay up you know septuple the price right um for you know an, an extra 0.1 percent it it makes well, no and certainly if it's all. if it's just an insoluble matter, you know, like if it's if it's just a piece of extra calcium sulfate or something that's not going to dissolve, yeah. we take care of that in a lot of ways, or it's not going to actually affect the plant growth in any way, you know, and and that's it's just that simple. I mean, there's medical grade or pharmaceutical grade chemicals, or it's kind of funny concept. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not a thing. No, that's 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 good to know because I was confused by that. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody was. No, I was. I mean, somebody put me on buzz about it. I was like, oh, my God. Well, they were like, you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. And and send them to me. Send me a link. Anybody out there, you got a link to buy these pharmaceutical grades? Like, DM it. I'll I'll buy it. I'll test it. I'll check it out. Yeah, if you if you want to get some super pure ingredients, you can go on something like Sigma. Um, you know, they provide basically research-grade chemicals, and the purities are incredibly high. Um and they can go look and see what those things cost, and then nobody's going to be growing another plant for the rest of their life. Um, and they're generally used for research, you know. So they, um, some of the trials that we did, I made made some fertilizer formulas that were using. Um, they would use N15 doped potassium nitrate or calcium nitrate, uh, and and N15 is just an isotope of nitrogen that they can track through the plant. Um, and those were running. They were in the range of like seven hundred dollars a gram. Like we, we are at this, yeah. and that's for like a a ninety nine percent enrichment. And so they, they use this N15 isotope and track it. Oh, that's the like plants. the lead you drink before you take the test at the it, hospital. Sure. Like I think it's barium. I don't think it's lead that you're drinking, but barium, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if you get, Potato, so that one's, a, that one's a radioisotope, so it's not stable. N15 is much more stable, but there's, see, a, that's the difference with talking to Chris Durand. Like, like, no, he knows the radioisotope of the thing, you know, uh, that's, that's awesome. But these N15s, I mean, this is, it's a really interesting thing. Like, uh, they, they can actually track based on the natural abundance of N15, um, of all of its isotopes, basically all the nitrogen isotopes, they can tell where the air, uh, whether a plant like fixed the nitrogen from the air or it came from the soil because they have different abundance levels. Um, and so they, they use these, these track tracing isotopes basically to find out where plants are translocating nitrogen, um, and when they apply it. But, you know, if you want to talk about getting expensive, you can find them but generally they're for research purposes and, and you know, there's no difference in plant growth between that you know, I mean, and, and a technical grade. We're, we're kind of doing that 
organically, you know, with what you do every day. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're essentially screening through them and then him with his filtration processes, you know, afterwards we are trying to get every little bit of everything out of them. Yeah. You know? But, yeah, when, but yeah. it's, 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 it's still, it's pharmaceutical grades, not really a thing. Um, you know, most of these are solution grade, greenhouse grade. Good um, marketing. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's a decent yeah. marketing hot term to Pitch. use, but you know, in the yeah. end it's still, this much potassium, this much nitrogen, this much. And, yeah. Yeah. and, and the combination that the recipe and the, the balance between those is what makes ours ours. Yeah. And it turns out plants don't need a pharmacy. Yeah. 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 Fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what is stack? Uh, so stack is a seaweed derived product. Um, it, there's a few other ingredients in it. I think we, it's all recommended for foliar applications. It does have some sugars in it. Um, and it's, it's for that reason why we don't recommend that you use it in the root zone. Um, you don't want to feed things down there, but it does have, you know, the seaweed in it and it has a lot of different trace elements, you know, plants, plants evolved in an environment where there were, there were a lot of things out in nature. And so we know that we can grow a plant with these base nutrients, um, and these base elements, but giving something like stack to these plants is going to, to enhance basically growth and ensure that if there's any other trace elements that are necessary for what the plant's doing, they are going to still get it, uh, and get a shot of it. What, what benefits will a cultivator see when, when using a product like that? Uh, it should, it should increase yields to some level. You know, I don't, we don't necessarily have published data on what, what we're getting, but there is a lot of research on seaweed, um, and some of the natural hormones that it has and some, some production increases in there. So in, in addition to just some of the other, it's also a great quick green up if you're in there and you see it's a little too pale and you got visitors coming to the grow next day and you want it to look tight, you know, pop it with some yeah, seaweed and foliar feeding is yeah. incredibly effective yeah and you know and this this is another response. way to, to foliar feed and you're foliar feeding with a complete you know a complete product yeah um why do why do we only recommend it as a as a foiler compared to a root trench what what problems could you see if if you did start feeding in the root zone the sugars yeah the sugars it's the same thing i just kind of touched on there if, if you're giving too many sugars to the root zone and you're not ready for it you can you can have some really bad side effects yeah, pathogens or yeah. whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Growing something in your root zone. It's yep. Just growing anything that's already there. If it's bad, it's just like eating leftovers. It it's fine if there was nothing in there, but if you take it home and it sits out for a while, you know those pathogens can grow. And okay. same same thing. If there's if there is passions pathogens there, if you feed it sugars, you're gonna grow them all. Good ones, bad ones. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's tricantinol? I hear I hear it in the industry. Tricantinol, this. What what is it? Yeah, so tricontinol, it's um, it's a plant hormone, like secondary plant hormone, and it's it, a lot of plants make it kind of in their waxy cuticle, their leaves. I think something like alfalfa, they also make it, um, and it basically increases the photosynthetic rate. So there's there's a lot of published data on on tricontinol and its efficacy for just increasing um, general growth rates. I know for for roses, there's some good work that was done on basal bud sites and increasing the basal bud sites um, as they were increasing rates of tricontinol. Um, you know, it's used in such small levels. So there's, I think there's, they don't see as much in the field, but in controlled growing environments, they've actually found a lot of, a lot of really positive benefits. Um, you know, there's, you can do a real deep dive on the research on it, but it actually has shown to, to proven or proven that it can increase yields. Um, and I think the, the study on like roses and the basal bud sites and actually increasing cell division you know, is really interesting. Where does it come from? Like, how does it get comes from plants? 
Yeah. So generally it is derived from, from plant sources for the most part. So, um, you know, like I said, it's the waxy cuticle. Almost all cells have a waxy cuticle on it that, to some degree, and that's how plants aren't desiccated all the time. Um, but the outer portion basically of a leaf um, has a little bit of waxiness to it, and certain plants produce more than others. And so it, it needs to be basically refined and extracted. It's incredibly um, tough to water solubilize, um, but it's good because it's also being applied in, you know, like parts per billion quantities, like, you know, nanograms per liter kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it creates more flower sites, increases yield. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a, I don't know, there's a lot of studies on, on cannabis in particular, but there's a, a good body of work that was started, you know, back in the seventies, um, showing, showing its efficacy. Right on. Yeah. Right. And it, and it's well tolerated, you know, by plants essentially, uh, safe for humans, safe for plants. Yeah. So it's not, not something like paclobutrazole that certainly isn't safe for humans. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a safe, safer or an organic PGR. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, like I said, it's not really a primary PGR. It doesn't yeah, work not, in the same it's way. Not really it's not like PGR. that. Okay. Yeah. It's not because the other ones generally work on, on, you know, oxens and, um, it's just not that same, same pathway. Gotcha. Um, but there is, you know, they have done a lot of work on it and they definitely have tracked, you know, increased photosynthetic activity. And nice. I think, you know, that's, that's the driver in photosynthates as they're called, which is what's made after photosynthesis. And those are, trackable and measurable and we know where those you know if you make more things from photosynthesis you're gonna have more plant yeah now, are some of them like oxen blockers like basically would the some of the pgrs like, yeah some of them it's basically the oxen is when everybody knows that if you just pop the top off a plant there's a hormone in there well that's oxen okay so when you when you just do like a fim or a small prune you're 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 taking out the oxen and that triggers the plant to want to branch more yeah you're doing okay. a lot of them are one or the other you're either yeah. you're either promoting branching um or you're trying to to decrease but they either are up regulating or down regulating auxins for a yeah. lot of the pgrs yeah. so, and th that isn't inherently bad it's it's the chemical that you're nest you know that you're using to do so yeah is the bigger concern yeah, yeah. um no it was sick it was a good good podcast that's all the questions i had but cool. I, I, what, what's the coolest uh, project you worked on at UC? What's your favorite project you worked on at UC Davis? I just, I just want to know. Um, I, you know, the N15 work was actually really a lot of fun working with that, the, the dope nitrogen because it, you know, it, it took a lot of my skills with, with nutrient management, nutrient building. And, and basically I had to be a steward, you know, if they're growing, you know, for one gram costs that much, a kilogram of this is, you know, costing them, you know, for even the low dope levels, it's like a kilogram of fertilizer you know, is, is running them in like the four or $5,000 range and they need to irrigate entire greenhouses of corn, um, or rice. And so, you know, it's making a formulation that's designed specifically for them, um, implementing it at the right time, you know, injecting it and getting everything to their crop and not just blowing through a ton of this super expensive isotope. Uh, and then they take this work and they can, they can backtrack and find out, you know, if they modify these genes, can they, can they find out what genetic traits are responsible for translocating nitrogen from say the root zone up into to some of the main leaves that are going to later go on and feed and make more productive corn. Um, and so they're, they're trying to identify and find out the pathways that these occur. And then they go back in, in nature and find varieties that already have these traits and then backbreed them into existing commercial lines so they can reduce overall nitrogen use in the field um, or to find, find if they can, somehow inoculate or find these exogenous bacteria that might be able to fix nitrogen in the root zone for plants. And so maybe we can cut down on some, some nitrogen use out in the field, you know, cause there's a lot of nitrogen that's washing down, you know, like 
the entire Mississippi River Basin and all the dead zones. I mean, that's a real problem. Yeah. Like it's, you know, not necessarily what we're dealing with a lot, but, you know, it is environmental stewardship is an important thing. And, you know, the, the Gulf shouldn't die because we want to have soy and corn. Yeah. Now, so that's that's not uh, modifying the genetics at all. That's more modifying the nutrients. Yeah. So so a lot of, you know, I think there's a, a misconception out there with a lot of work that's done with like what we're calling GMOs or transgenic plants. Oftentimes, a lot of the work that's done is they'll modify certain genetic sequences in these plants, look for the effect that that genetic sequence has so they can fast track the knowledge. And then once they find out which sequence is responsible for, say, drought resistance or nitrogen use efficiency, they will go back into these wild populations that have been mapped, tens of thousands of wild collected plants. They'll identify which plants already have that genetic sequence. They'll take that plant and breed it back into existing lines and release varieties of, of plants that are not transgenic. They so it's just, like pheno hunting. Yeah, but you can accelerate it because you can change the genes yourself in the beginning and find out where, where these genes exist that modify the traits we want. And then you just go hunting later. But since you've sequenced a bunch of these things, you know, genetic sequencing has made a huge, you know, huge inroads for agriculture so we can basically accelerate the timeline of all these breeding programs instead of just guess and check, which is what old breeding essentially was. You can just ID the genetic sequence, dwindle down your 10,000 starts to 20 starts, yeah. And then start backbreeding and get the get the effects you want. And this is becoming more and more important. You know, this goes for disease resistance. You know, we're in California is a, a state full of agriculture. You know, not just not my just brain's immediately away. going like I'm taking Mac one and I'm looking for all. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? You know, I, I mean, you could you could really you could do that for for any trait really. Totally, yeah. and it's just the identification process. You know, and I there's you know I, there's just some natural pushback to people hearing you know transgenic or gmo but a lot of the work that's done is ultimately yeah. to produce a crop with that was bred from natural genes these genes already basically exist we just need to find them yeah, find you're not out what's eating a modified no thing you're no. You, they basically use the modification that it be beginning as a map yeah to find the phenotypes that that you know just like your phenia imagine if you could just take 10,000 seeds and plant them and be able to just go okay here's where all all of these traits are let's just go get those yeah which one are you don't has you don't sequence. have to grow it up you don't have to flower it out you don't have to do all those trials and flower it three times and and do all that you can just say okay these all have this trait let's take all these and we'll cross all these you see so it, it's it's a sh you're still only taking the 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 actual plant and you're crossing it so there's no modified product that's that's like you're eating something you're going to eat it yeah. and it's going to change you um you know but they can they can breed in certain disease resistance um just because the plant had natural disease resistance like yeah you just um, have to find it yeah for like regalia that's an interesting one that's that's similar it's not you know created in the exact same way but that was an invasive plant species that was incredibly resistant to powdery mildews and bud rot and all these funguses it could be in completely humid environments with the spores all around and it wouldn't get it so yeah. they went and they took the roots of this plant and extracted it and are now feeding that to plants which is helping to build their natural resistance you know yeah. so there's all these clues like all over the place that you know you can you can go search out and 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 go in a different direction to try yeah. to create something that's going to help the yeah the the old route would be you know you'd plant out all ten thousand, inoculate them all with say powdery mildew the ones that were resistant then you'd go get those ones and start crossing them and see if you can get a get a plant that could do it if you could modify the areas that you know already have some level of disease resistance because you've tested other ones you've looked at their sequence you create it try to try to make that in advance basically you can really shortcut a lot of time you know, otherwise breeding programs take 
take forever. You know, it, it's a slow process. So why did you guys need to use such a very expensive, clean, you know, formulation on the, on the, on the nutrient side? Uh, just being able to, um, so in general, um, you know, it's funny, researchers are not as picky about the, the cleanliness of their fertilizers. You know, they, I think they're coming from a more practical stance and they okay. understand already that if a plant has all of the elements that it needs, it's going to grow fine. So they aren't, they aren't as concerned with that. Um, but when you start shifting into things that are more nutrient dependent, so if you're doing something for say, you know, you're looking for disease resistance, um, you're just providing a, a, an acceptable nutrient profile, say for a bunch of pepper plants. So you, you get one that's kind of commercially known so they can publish the data um, and you work from there. And so it's not, the nutrients aren't the biggest concern. It's just that it's very consistent. So the, you know, following the regimented recipes to make these things is important. When we start talking about the N15 things, then contaminants become more and more important because to, to make a potassium nitrate that's, that's doped with this N15 is a very challenging process. They essentially have to, you know, use a, a centrifuge to separate out N14s and N15s, and it's an expensive and time-consuming yeah, and the only process. reason they're doing that is, is to have that isotope in there so then they can just trace the movement yeah. of the nutrient through the plant. Yeah, and you wish it. Uh, you, gotcha. That's why it's so expensive. Okay. Yeah, you wish it were they, as cool as the 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 barium when they're they're watching you like actually yeah. swallow things. They, it's not as easy as that because it's in a yeah. plant, right? It's yeah. not peristaltic. So they're they're taking samples during time and checking with little leaf tissue samples going up, and then they run it back to a mass spec and find out where has that N15 gone. Oh, so yeah. it's a they, so they track it's a tracer, it through, it's yeah. A tracker. yeah, and, and it really it helps for plant physiology finding out you know where is the plant getting its nitrogen. Yeah. So. Oh, that's pretty badass. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, those are some really cool experiments. So. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, like I, I grew a pot plant next to my pepper plant. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what I did. And, you know, wasn't that sophisticated? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've grown a lot of. When I was at UC Davis, there was just a lot of weird crops that came through there. You know, I think that's that's something that people forget when they're, um, when a lot of the tax money is going to to, paying for research is, you know, you just don't know what you're going to get, and I think letting letting basically young and imaginative people who are just getting off their research career try some of these things is is really informative you know you never know who's going to discover what and it's really a small price to pay in the bigger picture for for somebody who might you know they're they're trialing this random plant that generates alkaloids that grows in like the peruvian highlands and it's like you never know maybe it's going to have some other beneficial medicinal effects you just don't know these things until somebody tries it yeah. um and the price is actually at the end of the day you know you're looking at a grad student who's getting a free education and you know a few thousand dollars a year it's just not so so awful you know but they're yeah. coming up with some pretty cool stuff yeah that's rad yeah that's super cool super how long were you uh, there at uc davis um well basically and started college there in 2001 and just just fully left uc davis and separated um at the end of 2020 so 19 years that was a big change 20 over 20 years right yeah, right around 20 years. Yeah, so. 20 years. 19 years. Big change from going from that to how is it, you know, running a manufacturing facility now with a bunch of employees? Uh, so I did have a bunch of employees at UC Davis. Um, we were we were kind of on the outside. You know, like I said, we helped manage a lot of these research projects. So they would, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed grad students would come in and they'd have basically no idea. They had this idea about this plant, but, but they getting them to effectively grow these plants was, was very challenging, right? So they just wouldn't get it. They didn't know they needed fertilizer. They didn't know about watering regimens. They didn't, 
they just had no idea. Um, and, it, and even more complicated if it was something that they went and harvested out in the wild, you know, how does this plant grow? So I'd, I'd take my, my knowledge of all the other crops we'd grown, try to basically make some fertilizer for them, get their crop growing, um, optimize the system. Um, so I, I managed a lot of people that weren't my employees at UC Davis, a lot of grad students. So there's a lot yeah. of mentorship going on uh, yeah. and a lot of, a lot of educational opportunities. Um, and, and there's a lot of that also in manufacturing for nutrients. There's just not a lot of people out there that are doing that kind of work. Um, and certainly they're not doing what we do. And so, you know, it, it is a big change, um, you know, but I, I got to take a lot of my experiences and bring them here too. You know, like yeah. there, there's a lot of yeah. teaching and mentorship and it's, it's nice to work with a really good team. Um, and you know, we, there's a, it's a, it's a huge industry. We're all growing, you know, and it's, it's nice to be a part of this industry also. And, and I've watched it mature from, you know, a bunch of closet growers with some crazy ideas. I remember, um, <laughs> I took a trip and it was, I was going back home during college and I was, I started growing quite a bit at this point. Sorry, college. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was a guy and he was telling me, you know, and he was coming back from college also. And, and we were talking, he was like, oh yeah, you know, like I was told if you, if you, when you're harvesting your plant, you, you boil the roots before you actually harvest and it'll increase all of your, your, <laughs> somebody over there looking at me like I'm crazy. And I thought, you know, it's the same thing. I'm like, this is, I've loved that it's matured from you not being asked to remove your plant and boil its roots to increase THC content yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's the level of sophistication and, and knowledge and communication is just becoming less, like less mystical and more scientific. And I, I appreciate that change. And, and that's, that's what I'm happy to be a part of is like, yeah. we, we can pull some of the veil off of this hocus pocus um, and talk about actually how you're going to manage your plants, manage your crops. And it's not, it's not magic. It's actually hard work. And, and people putting in their knowledge and experience with the tools that they're given. I can give people good tools. You know, that's, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. We try to drive that home at yeah. Athena, just yeah. as a group as a whole. Yeah. I mean, that, with that's, your help, that's, you know, that's how we became partners. I, I, yeah. I didn't get a lot of, of magic and mysticism. And, and, you know, I think, I think that's why we kind of realized that it was going to work out, you know, yeah. because it wasn't that. Yeah. It was, it was very much the same for me when I was like, oh wait, people are actually talking sense. You yeah. know, they're taught and it, it was less less you know stuff they heard from somewhere here they they wanted to research it they wanted the science behind it they wanted to be you know pragmatic and know what works and if there was a new better way to do it it wasn't this like whoa this is the way we've always done it man no there's a newer better way to do it let's head in that direction because if you're you know standing still you're gonna yeah. get left behind you yeah, need to always be optimizing and always be improving let's be logical you know let's use reason and let's use analytical techniques to find out what's causing people problems mm -hmm. and what's working and let's help people get those those methods that that we've observed and and made better yeah um and know, grower focused you know we're, yeah. we're a super grower focused company yeah absolutely yeah. well you know, we're, we're one of the very few companies that will tell you not to use our products, you know, in certain situations. Yeah. If it's not right for you, it's not right for you. you yeah. Know, or just not, you know, feed a certain product or use it the in arbiter. a certain system. That's it. Yeah. It's like, this is what we think will work, you know, and, and, and having the whole, you know, facility advisor team around it is, is really, I think going to make the difference because, you know, when I was out there, like I just had to try stuff. You know, I had to try stuff. I had to do research and then try it. And, and now if you can just talk to someone that's already tried it and screwed this up a few times, you know, a few dozen times in my case, um, uh, 
you, you know, you, if I can stop a grower from making two or three mistakes, like I just saved him six months of troubles because he made that mistake and he burned a crop and that was three months of work. And now he's got some shitty work he's got to sell and, and that. So if I can just be there and to be able to, to help these people with a, with a couple bits of knowledge on, you know, how to not mistake, make the mistakes that I've already made or, you know, what's hocus pocus and what's not, um, you know, and just get people back towards, cause it's, it's kind of like cooking. It's, it's an art and a science, you know, you need to, you need to be able to have the right ingredients, but just having the right ingredients and not knowing exactly how to execute, you know, it becomes, okay, I have all the right ingredients and I need to execute every time like this for and, my conditions. Yeah. Like that's, for, that's the other key where yeah. these, these grow advisors come in is they, they can understand and read the conditions of your facilities. You know, talking about baking, it is an art and a science, you know, but if you, there's other things that come into play. Your yeah. art and your science are different if you're at 6,000 feet elevation than if you're at ground level. You know, simple yeah. example, um, but it's analogous to going into some of these grows and understanding, you know, what your conditions are like and how that's going to affect the way you need to use your tools. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're always evolving as a team as well. I mean, I know some of the facility advisors went out and, and saw you and, and learning, <clears throat> learning from you. They, they go out to Ivan and learn from Ivan. And, but we're also evolving as a company. I mean, if you go back on our feed a long time ago, you know, we might've been giving a little bit of different information than we are today, but that's just because we're evolving as a company, you know, and, yeah. and look, we, we're not always right. And, um, we'll admit when we're wrong, but we're always moving towards the right direction. And I think that's going to, um, you know, be the success of of athena for sure yeah got to keep learning I yeah mean, we're, we're providing these tools and we have a lot of experience but we should continue learning with with our clients when we can yeah yeah know? and that's that's what we do yeah. cool appreciate it guys yeah. this was awesome thanks man yeah. i appreciate it thanks, thanks. Brandon. thanks for having thank us. you